You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, 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 thank you for your patience with our, our technical innovations here at uh, Variety with our PowerPoint Ooh. display. We're very excited to bring you the latest in technology here. So. Anyhow, uh, some of you are uh, old and familiar faces. You've been coming for a while, so you know that I am Rena Weissman. I'm the coordinator of SF and SF, uh, and we are sponsored by Variety Children's Charity of Northern California, in whose lovely theater you're sitting in. And uh, again, a big thanks to the people that make that happen. And most of all, our moderator, Terry Bisson. Thank you. I'm going to be real brief. As you know, I usually uh, sit up here and introduce the readers and then uh, pretend I'm paying attention as they read. Uh, but tonight is kind of extraordinary. We have not two readers, but uh, we have a rather, I think, a rather extraordinary creative enterprise, which is uh, is changing science fiction in some interest and fantasy in some interesting ways. And uh, so I'm going to let them introduce themselves, and because that's really what they're here to do, and then, uh, and then we'll have the Q&A discussion afterwards. So I'm going to turn it over to Jeff and Ann Vandermeer. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Terry, for such a nice introduction and kind words. Um, I'm Ann Vandermeer. I am the editor of Weird Tales magazine, and in addition, in addition to editing Weird Tales, I also do a lot of anthology projects with my husband, Jeff. And I'm Jeff Vandermeer, and I am primarily a fiction writer, but lately, especially since I finished a long, exhausting 17-year uh, trilogy, uh, I've been doing a lot of nonfiction projects, which has allowed me to branch out into some areas that I wasn't sure at the time I could actually um, do, but at least I'm faking it pretty well. <laughs> so, um, so what we thought we'd pretty much offer tonight is kind of a smorgasbord because a lot of the projects we're doing are now so intensely visual, and because we have projects coming out that are just kind of outside the box in terms of how they deal with the visuals. We thought we'd put together a PowerPoint that would preview some of these projects, talk about stuff that's out. Um, I should add, before I forget, that um, I think the next Steampunk Movie Night, they're giving away uh, an advanced copy, no one else in the world will have it, of uh, the Steampunk Bible. I do have one copy with me um, that you guys can look at afterwards if you want to. Um, but um, so, so basically, um, the book I'm promoting right now, and the one I want to talk about first uh, briefly, is uh, Monstrous Creatures, which is a collection of nonfiction called from the last five years of writing for the New York Times and the LA Times and Washington Post and uh, Amazon and a variety of other places. And it includes essays, uh, interviews, uh, appreciations, reviews, and some personal essays um, that are all about the monstrous in some way. Now, to me, the monstrous is not actually something that's a bad thing. And so I thought what I would do is just read the brief introduction to the collection um, to give you an idea of, of where I'm coming from when I, when I say monstrous. From an early age, I think I had an appreciation for a definition of monstrous that did not mean hideous, horrible, or ghastly. Growing up in the Fiji Islands, if I came upon a lugubrious slug, it was a cause for triumph and awe, not recoil. Similarly, the defiantly ugly toads that would hop lethargic through the grass, 
I loved them and their jaded, watchful, but calm eyes. And tough old lobsters while snorkeling and snarling moray eels were better than bejeweled fish any day. No surprise then that when I grew up, I pursued the monstrous with gusto. The insane micro-sinister of fungi attracted me, and I still find nothing more sublime than encountering a particularly monstrous mushroom, gnarled and gilled and enigmatic, shoving its way into our world from the trunk of a tree. A fascination with the sea followed me as well, so that giant squid and other cephalopods made a meal of me in hundreds of hours spent researching them and discovering their most monstrous secrets. Megafauna, breadfruit, wolverines, sea cucumbers, sloths, rhinoceros beetles, the list of those things that I find amazing trends towards the monstrous. In this sense, to me, the monstrous is the intersection of the beautiful with the strange, the dangerous with the sublime. Things that seem to be continuously unknowable no matter how much you discover about them, that surround themselves with darkness. Sometimes, too, they are utterly terrifying no matter how you try to keep that thought out of your head. Books can be like that, too. The best fictions often have those qualities. They reveal marvels, but they withhold some of their secrets as well. Monstrously ambitious, monstrously odd, monstrously wide and deep, or even monstrously about monsters. And uh, in this particular collection, we have a wide variety of things that are tied together by their connection to monsters. Uh, for example, there's an interview in here with China Mieville that I think is the best interview I've ever done, where beforehand he was in kind of a mood and he said, I couldn't ask him anything about his books. <laughs> which kind of <laughs> threw me for a loop. I, in fact, I, I, I am him back and I said, well, should I ask you about your workout sessions? And he, he declined on that, that too. So we talked about monsters generally. Um, and uh, so, so that interview is in there. And uh, my love-hate love relationship with Clark Ashton Smith, um, a giant of literature, J.G. Ballard, um, the Dungeon series, a comic series that's just absolutely amazing, um, Authors in Praise of Beer, which is quite a monstrous uh, piece. And, um, you know, goes on in that vein. Also, the Hanukkah bear in the personal essay section, which is about how my stepdaughter fooled me into believing that there was a Hanukkah bear. At, and at some point later, I then confronted the rabbi with this information since I just moved up to, to live with Anne and was anxious to learn about Judaism and got a quite uh, puzzled response. Um, so that is also in there as monstrous, along with an interview with a giant capybara owner in which you learn that not only is there a capybara Twitter society, but there's a guinea pig Twitter society that worships and pretends to be their guinea pigs, the owners do, and, and basically follow the capybara threat as the ultimate guinea pig. Um, so. <laughs> So there are communities within communities within every subculture. <laughs> anyway, event, that is that book. And because this is a theme that also runs through my short story collection, The Third Bear, and now into the novel I'm writing, I thought I would just read the opening of the novel I'm working on called Born, which is very much about monsters because it's about one monster that facilitates the discovery of another. And I keep saying when people ask me what this novel is about, it's basically like a Chekhov play in the round with Godzilla and Mothra beating the crap out of them so, uh, out of each other in the background um, because there's some very intense personal stuff in the foreground and then there is a very epic battle going on in the background. Um, and it ties in very well with the nonfiction collection. Uh, this particular, this particular piece, uh, piece is um, actually up as a podcast on Agony Column and uh, is also a longer excer excerpt going to appear in Black Clock, which is a um, San Francisco-based magazine. So if you like this excerpt, a full 10,000 words of this are going to be in the next issue of Black Clock. And it's about a giant bear who can levitate, among other things, in a post-apocalyptic society. 
I found it on a sunny gunmetal day when Mord had come a-roving near the balcony cliffs where I made my home. I found it on Mord's flank as he shuddered in his sleep, his one haunch rising high above me, deep within that brown fur jungle mottled and stinking of musk and carrion and chemicals teeming with parasites. Mord had leveled the building when he'd fallen over in slumber, and pieces of soft brick rubble had mashed out to the sides, repurposed as Mord's bed. Even asleep, Mord's outline rose three stories. He had claws and fangs that could eviscerate, extinguish, quick as thought. His eyes, sometimes open even in dream, were vast flying-crusted beacons, spies for a self-loathing mind that some believed worked on vast cosmic scales. But to me, at his flanks, a human flea, all he stood for was scavenging. When Mord wandered out seething from the lair he had hollowed in the company's basement, all kinds of food and broken bioneered artifacts became tangled in his ropey fur. Sometimes he gave us only the corpses of unrecognizable animals, their skulls burst from some internal pressure, eyes bright and bulging. Sometimes we found the beetles you could put in your ears, and within the explosion of mint or lime or orange, formed visions of places I hoped did not exist, had never existed despite my childhood memories. Some of these things may have been placed there purposefully, Wick always warned me. They were traps, they were misdirection. But I knew traps, I set traps myself. Just be careful, Rachel said as I left, and I ignored him as if he spoke in a foreign language. This thing that I found was not food, not recognizably valuable, and yet I still was drawn to it. Entangled in the brown coarse seaweed of Mord's pelt, too near a curled claw much larger than my body, I found the sea anemone. At least that's what it looked like to me. Dark purple, half clo closed, strobing emerald green over the purple. I could smell the sea salt on it, rising in a wave, and for a moment there was no city, no suit, search for food and water, no mutilated bodies dangling from broken street lamps burned beyond recovering their names or faces. For a precarious moment, the thing I'd found was a sea anemone from the tidal pools of my youth. I could smell the salt and feel the wind, knew the chill of water on my feet, the exhilarating hunt for seashells, the gruff sound of my father's voice, the upward lilt of my mother's the honey warmth of the sand as I squinted to look at the horizon and the crisp white sails of ships that hinted at civilization beyond our island, the sun above the curious yellow of one of Maud's eyes. This thing lay there softly humming to itself, the half-closed aperture on the top like a constantly dilating mouth, the spirals of flesh contracting, expanding, and the closer I came to it through Mord's fur, the more it resembled a hybrid of sea anemone and squid, a slick vase about the size of my fist, whose rippling colors strayed towards deep blues and sea greens. It had four ridges, evenly spaced and vertical, along its warm and pulsating skin. The texture was smooth as water-worn stone, but also somewhat rubbery. It smelled of beech reeds on lazy afternoons, and also beneath the sea salt of passion flowers. Later, I came to realize it might have smelled differently to someone else. It didn't really look like food, and it wasn't a memory beetle, but I'd been fooled before, so I picked it up anyway. And that leads to a whole series of events, because this is actually a purposeful being um, that comes into conflict with Mord and turns out to keep growing and growing. So that's where the Mothra versus uh, Godzilla comes in. 
So that's where I am right now. <laughs> now I'm going to turn it over to Anne for a while while she talks about weird tales. And we have to do this so that we can get the slide changed. <laughs> uh, weird tales, old and new. That's one of my favorite covers there. That cover came out in the 40s. The artist is uh, Margaret Brundage. And um, I love that cover. The Batwoman. The Bat Batwoman. You don't like the other cover? I like the other cover, too. <laughs> the cover next to it is um, one of the issues that I did. I um, started on with uh, Weird Tales back in 2007. And the mission that I was given as the new fiction editor was to bring Weird Tales into the 21st century. To do that, but to still maintain the traditions of what Weird Tales is. OK, so what is Weird Tales? Weird Tales is that unsettling thing that you see out of the corner of your eye, you're not quite sure what it is. It might be scary, but it might not be scary. The one thing we know for sure is we've never seen it before. Weird Tales has always been provocative. Just take a look at those covers. Also, I want to point out to you that it is March. It is Women's History Month, and both of those covers were done by women. Margaret Brundage did a lot of covers for Weird Tales, and she caught a lot of flack for it, too. But she was the first woman that did covers like that for major magazines for many years. The um, other cover is done by a Finnish artist by the name of, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but Sari Salmi. And um, that's an awesome, awesome cover right there. But inside that particular issue is the most amazing haunted house story you have ever read in your life. Now, you think that you have read haunted house stories, but not until you've read this one, because this haunted house story was told from the point of view of the haunted house. And it is, it is online. The name of that story is Renovations, and it was the first sale by a writer by the name of Matthew Pridham. And we're ready for the next. Okay, a few years ago, Weird Tales celebrated 85 years of publication. It's the oldest fantasy magazine, started up in 1923. And when we had our 85th year celebration, we did that cover that you see there with, um, that's actually Elric. And we, we had a Michael Moorcock, Michael Moorcock wrote a new Elric novella just for me for this particular issue. One of the things that I wanted to do with Weird Tales, bring it into the 21st century, is to take seasoned pros whose work I love, like Michael Moorcock and Tanith Lee, and put it next to the next generation of writers like Ramsey Shahadi and Rachel Swirsky. And that's what we did with that issue. Also in that issue, we did the 85 weirdest storytellers. Now, when you think about storytellers, you might think of just writers, but there is more than one way to bring on your weird. So in addition to writers, we have filmmakers, we have artists, we have um, musicians, all different kinds of weird people are represented in that issue. Next to that, we have the international issue. It's another way that we're expanding and growing the weird brand is by branching out around the world because what's normal for someone in one country is going to be weird in somebody else's country. And we wanted to bring all of those weird voices from all over the world to Weird Tales. And so that, that issue right there, we have this, the countries that are represented are, if you'll hold on a second, we have Serbia, Italy, Spain, the Philippines, Israel, Bulgaria, and Slo Slovakia. So that's just to start just for that one issue. And it continues. We have um, in the new issue that we've got right now, we've got a writer from uh, Sweden. And we will continue to have writers from around the world represented in Weird Tales because Weird Tales knows no boundaries. 
<laughs> okay, Weird Tales goes steampunk. That is the um, Weird Tales steampunk issue. You see the art from Molly Crabapple, but I have a feeling that if you were to go through the back issues of Weird Tales from back in the day, you would find classic steampunk because I'm sure that Weird Tales did it first and did it pretty well. But that particular issue was really cool. I love Molly Crabapple's art. She's um, an amazing artist, but she's also the founder of Dr. Sketchy's Art School, where she actually had um, burlesque models come on stage and do their performance and then have artists come in and sketch them. And it became such a big hit that I think there's 150 of them now around the world. So that's Molly Crabapple, that's her weird, and we brought it into Weird Tales. Next to that is the Uncanny Beauty issue that came out um, last October. And I just love that cover. Uh, Weird does come in many flavors. That's beautiful, but it's also very, very strange. And the Weird can be beautiful. And that's what I wanted to show you with that. Okay, what you see right there is the current issue, which is this one right here. And um, this issue is a really cool issue, and I'll tell you why. Because this is the first issue that is done with the new editorial team of Weird Tales. I became the editor-in-chief last year, and I have a new art director, Mary Robinick Cowell, and a new nonfiction editor, Paula Garan. And guess what? The first time in the history of Weird Tales, an all-female management editorial team. In 88 years, Women's History Month, thank you very much. Because, uh, <laughs> but if you go back and look at some of the, the older stuff, I mean, I am following in the footsteps of some fantastic uh, people, and um, you will see that as we continue. Um, let's see, the next thing I wanted to show. Oh, the, ne the, the one right there is the, the cover for the next issue that we're working on right now. This is an artist by the name of Carrie Ann Badge. She actually happens to live in Tallahassee, believe it or not. There's all kinds of weirdness going on in Tallahassee that I didn't even know about. <laughs> Mary had to introduce me to Carrie Ann, and um, that's going to be the cover. It's not a final cover. We're still messing around with the logo and stuff like that, but that's the final art, and I just think that's damn weird. It looks like the other awesome. Yeah, it does kind of look like that because you've got, yeah, yeah. I like having the, the, the image of, of, a, of a woman's face, and if you go back to the classic Weird Tales covers like the Margaret Brundage that I showed you earlier, you see a lot of that. Very provocative covers. Weird Tales has been known for provocative covers and also for provocative fiction, and we continue that in the 21st century. Okay, this is some of the interior art from Carrie Ann. I just wanted you to take a look at it because I just love it so much. It's very, very cool, and she's just amazing. Yes, we can do the next one now. Okay. Sorry for this. Did you see it? <laughs> next, next. Rita, next. Thank you. Oh, yes. Okay, this is the new website. We just launched the new website in the end of January. And if you will take a close look, you will notice it's the same colors of my favorite Margaret Brundage cover, which is the Batwoman cover. I love those colors, but we still have our tentacles. But we are moving it into to the, to the, um, the 21st century. And how we're doing that is by doing all kinds of nifty things. One of the things that we're doing is the one-minute Weird Tales, the one-minute um, videos, which I'm going to show you one in just a second. And hopefully, the sound will work. But if it doesn't, you can see it online. And the, the videographer is actually in the audience right there, um, Greg Bossert. 
And um, <laughs> our plan moving forward is to do um, two one-minute videos every single month. We are also planning on doing a five-minute story once a week. And then eventually we're going to be starting a new program of a tweet a day. One tweet, one weird tweet a day. So keep looking at the um, website and you will see the um, call for tweets. Okay, and so let's go to the next. And this you're actually going to have to click on the black screen so the video can play. This is an example of a one-minute video. I think you have to click in the middle of it. Yeah, click in the Rena. middle of the black space. Okay. To so like it? Okay. So okay. It won't play? No. Well, that's okay. <laughs> Pardon me? <laughs> well, we have to be able to get to the next slide, though. Okay. It, it actually is really awesome. It's, oh, I um, forgot. The, na the name of the video There's is an How to Catch an Angel by Rashida Lewinen Ruiz, is, who is a Filipino writer, and she's another next generation writer to watch. Yeah, yeah, we sure. can play it. If anyone wants to see it, we'll move the laptop and okay. y'all can see it and you'll have the sound and it's just awesome. You're the only one I could see how you do, so. Me? No, Anne. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I think we're ready for that the next slide. Not. Okay. <laughs> oh, and the, uh, the next yeah. issue, I'm, I'm sorry, one last thing I wanted to say about the next issue. You saw the cover. That particular issue is going to be Weird Tales Goes to Hell and Back. So stay tuned. So um, back in uh, 2003, uh, we had an anthology um, that I edited with Mark Roberts, but to be absolutely honest, I did a lot of work on it. And one reason we started editing anthologies together is that so we can both get the credit we deserve for the projects we're working on. Um, but in any event, we did this uh, fake disease guide, basically, which was a lot of fun when we did the readings because we would have the writers dress up in lab coats, and people who weren't there for the reading would walk by and they'd hear something like motile sarcoma or, or uh, ballistic uh, organ syndrome, and they would think, holy crap, is this a medical convention or what is this, you know? And sometimes even the bookstores weren't quite sure. We did one reading at a Borders in um, New York, which I can... I can mention now, um, where this guy kept following me and asking me, he said he had a problem with his knee and if I could I help him? And I kept telling him, no, I'm not that kind of doctor or actually any kind of doctor. Um, and it still gets filed in medical libraries. We still have um, medical interns and first year doctors who email us and say, hey, this is awesome that we found this in our, in our medical library. Yeah, but to be fair, when, when they would do the readings, um, the writers would come in lab coats yes, with yeah. stethoscopes and beakers yeah. and things like so that. So, obvious. you know, of course they're going to mistake yeah. them for doctors. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> they do. They walk around right. in when lab coats. Right, they come coats into a bookstore, in, right? In bookstores. So, so anyway, so um, you can raise your hand. And, and there's an interior detail of one of it. It was a very, very intensely illustrated book. So that was just the title page right there. Um, so we thought about a sequel for a long time. And uh, we didn't want to do a second fake disease guy. That seemed kind of lame. Um, so we eventually came up with this idea that he had had a cabinet of curiosities. Um, and um, this book That's is coming out from HarperCollins in um, June. 
And basically it is that they've uncovered underneath his mansion this cabinet of curiosities, and each story is based around a different object. So there's a lot of art involved. Mike Mignola contributed four original pieces. Greg Broadmoor, who worked on Lord of the Rings. Um, we have all kinds of amazing artists on this. Um, Yishan Lee, who did the uh, graphic novel for Naomi Novik's uh, series. And um, well, you can just see we have uh, Ted Chang, who doesn't usually write on demand, but we sent him an image and we said, Ted, how do you feel about this image? Do you feel anything stirring? And he said, well, I don't normally write anything except what I want to write every three or four years, but I think I'll make an exception. So, <laughs> And uh, we got a piece from Alan Moore that's particularly uh, amazing because it's actually excerpts from the novel that he's working on that he can't seem to finish that somehow seem to fit. So, um, so that worked out very well. Sometimes. And also a writer we like quite a lot, um, Helen Oyeyemi, who's uh, mostly known in the UK right now, and of course Sherry Priest, and so on and so forth. But it's a heavily illustrated project. Um, it is coming out in, in um, June in an oversized hardcover, uh, very much like the Steampunk Bible. We thought we'd just show you some pages and tell you some of the backstory behind them and images. So, John Colthart did all of the interior title pages for the different sections, and Chani Mabel contributed two art pieces that were too whacked out to really like fit anywhere else, so we gave him his own section. Um, and uh, yeah, that's a little faded, but you get the idea. It's fairly, fairly ornate. This is an interesting story. Uh, this is a piece by Jan Svenkmeyer, the Czech animator. Um, we were in Prague, we found his tiny little gallery, we bought this piece for a ridiculously low amount of, of, of dollars or whatever, and um, when it came time to do this anthology, we thought, well, why don't we just contact Svenkmeyer's agent and see if we can include it in the anthology? Because it's an original print. There are no other copies of it. It's never appeared anywhere else. And uh, lo and behold, he actually was thrilled to be in an anthology with Alan Moore and, um, <laughs> and said yes. So um, as you can tell from this crappy photograph, we're having some difficulty in, in getting the right <laughs> photograph of it because it's actually quite, not quite as, as, as dark as this. But... Um, it's quite an interesting, like, cryptozoology piece, we think, and kind of playful, so. And then there were the, um, the, um, there were the, <laughs> the pieces by um, Mike Mignola, who requested certain writers to do the, the writing for his pieces, and one of them was Mike Moorcock, who he'd always wanted to work with, and I don't know if you want to explain what the story is about that Michael Moorcock came up with based on this one single image. Do I don't, I don't know if I can explain this okay. story, but I think this is probably one of the best stories that he's ever written. Yeah, it, it involves little cut-up fairies in people's por porridge. It also includes... Oh, someone's looking very sad actually, about that. I, actually, I can tell you. I can tell the you. bathosphere. No. The bathosphere? Yeah. Well, I was going to talk okay. about these, um, these missionaries that are trying to get rid of evil in people, and they think the best way to do that is to miniaturize themselves and get, get injected into their bloodstream so they can get rid of the evil. Of heathens, anyway, yes. So that's also involved. That's kind of the theme. You see, <laughs> it's hard to describe, but it's very good. Because you see, the guy's got a cross, so he's a missionary, obviously. He's about ready to be miniaturized and put in someone's bloodstream to convert them on the cellular level, basically. Exactly. So, yeah. Next one. Yeah. And then there were people like J.K. Potter, who is one of our favorites, who has not really been in the public eye lately. He's been moving and all kinds of things. And so we thought, well, we'll, we'll ping him and see if he has anything. And he sent us this. We thought, this is amazing. How did you put this together? Is it phot photography, Photoshop, whatever? And he said, no, I just took a photograph of some of my shelves in my office. Um, and this is actually just a photograph of the stuff he has in his house, which we thought was rather amazing and almost frightening at the same time. <laughs> so. 
you have to have a thing in a jar <laughs> yes. if you're going to have an anthology like this. If you have and a so, cabinet, there's got to be a thing in a jar. So this is a <laughs> this is a piece by Aaron Alfrey, and we gave it to a writer named Michael Sisko, who has a great novel called The Narrator out. And he thought it would be really funny if this turned out to have been discovered by uh, an African anthropologist who's over studying uh, those crazy Europeans over in the UK. So this is something that he finds um, that is apparently European in origin. And there's a whole story behind it, but what's really neat is that it's really hilariously funny, and yet the sting in the tails, it becomes incredibly emotional. It's actually a really amazingly deep piece by the end. So there's thing something in the jar came through. There's something with um, obsession with volcanoes. That too, which is a little weird. You can skip that if you want to get to the emotional part, but. <laughs> And then in playing around with the black backstory, um, there's a, a, a French artist named San Van Olfen that we love quite a bit. And we thought, what if there, we turn San Van Olfen into a villain who hates Dr. Lambshead for some reason and stages all of these musicals that are horrible, that get canceled after three weeks, that basically slander and libel Dr. Lambshead. And so this is a still from the production of musical. the musical where he implies that Lambshead is doing all these horrible unethical experiments in his basement and of course in the musical they're all singing through these gas masks <laughs> so forget about this one yeah <laughs> I forgot this was in here um, <laughs> well this is, it, it won't take that long um, the the bear is actually from the uh, the back of the book, we had an open reading period for flash fiction where people could contribute short 150-word entries of other items in the cabinet that we could list in kind of an appendix. And somebody uh, submitted something called a bear gun, which is a gun that when you shoot it, a bear comes out, which we thought Naturally. was <laughs> rather revolutionary. Um, and so this is actually, uh, on the left here, one of the bears that came out. Um, and he's got bandages and stuff because it's really tra traumatic for a bear to be shot out of a gun like that. Um, and we're not quite sure how yeah. effective a weapon that is, yeah. but who knows? And then the piece on the right, the piece yeah, on the right is relatively minimalistic, but it's one of the China Mieville pieces, and he called it Gallows Horse. And we gave it to a writer named Reza Negaristani, who is a horror writer and a philosopher. And he came up with what I think are 10 pages of the most brilliant writing I've ever seen that probably only 10% of the people who read the book will appreciate, but it's just absolutely genius level stuff. It is mind blowing. So. China was he's, very he's happy. He's definitely a writer you need to be uh, yeah. looking out for, Reza yeah. Negaristani. Yeah, pretty amazing. And this is just to give you an idea of some of the actual uh, proof pages from the book. On the left, uh, one of our favorite uh, artists, uh, Ivica Stevanovic, uh, a Serbian artist, who has this great kind of, kind of grotesque, grotesque Boschian feel to his art, but also a little bit of satire to it. And so this piece uh, on the left here is for Jeffrey Ford's story, The Relic, which is about a, an obscure church where they have this blackened relic of a foot from a, from a, from a saint. And all these people so come by think. trying to either steal it or tell him stories about what it really is. And it's one of the most amazing stories I've ever read because it starts out and it seems like it's totally random. And by the end, it all clicks into place. And it's just unbelievable. Um, and this piece kind of captures the fact that it's also kind of an absurd story. I mean, there's all these people lying, 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 lying throughout the whole story. Um, and it, it's quite amazing, amazing piece. And then on the left there, um, Amal El-Motar is, we think, one of the, 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 well, she's one of our favorite rising talents. And we um, have had this piece that is a, you can't really tell here, but it's a, it's a, 
a, a somewhat hefty man with owls on his shoulders, looking scowlingly at a singing fish. And it was done by some anonymous German artist in 1910. And we've been trying to get this into an anthology for a long time. And this seemed like the perfect opportunity. So we sent this to Amal, and we said, can you do anything with this? <laughs> and she sent back a kind of, I think so. <laughs> and then she wrote a story around it, which is actually a really amazing story. So. And the end papers are by this Russian artist who bases all of his work on the story of this German mechanic who went crazy after World War I. He'd been in the war and spent the last 30 years of his life in a sanitarium drawing weapons of mechanized animals he thought would have won the war for Germany. And when this Russian artist heard of this, heard of this story, he thought, wow, that's amazing, except for the real weird, you know, the really kind of creepiness of the weapon part. So let me make all these kind of more whimsical animals that are also half mechanical. And so the end papers will have this and some other images on them. We think it's rather cool. <laughs> and then there's the Steampunk Bible, which, like I said, I have here. Um, which is an overview of the entire steampunk subculture from making an art to the fiction to the fashion. Um, it has an origins chapter on Vernon Wells. I think it shows the full breadth and, and width of, of this whole movement, quote unquote movement. Um, and you may have seen part of, you know, discussions of steampunk fiction and both pros and cons. Is it this? Is it that? Um, but I think after you read this book, you'll see that it's actually both things. And it can be both a really progressive thing or a not so progressive thing. And that people who are in the, the, the maker world, for example, are totally oblivious to this entire discussion because they're just dealing with the engineering of things. Um, and that there's some really cool, um, actually some really cool um, nihilists working in the field as well. Um, but I, I, I thought I would preview, this book isn't out until May, some of the pages and some of the images with some of the backstory behind it. So. That's the Steampunk Treehouse, which is kind of the iconic um, thing that's mentioned when you talk about steampunk outside of the fiction. Uh, it debuted at Burning Man. It was mentioned in the New York Times article in 2008. It's by Sean Orlando, who actually lives here in San Francisco and was involved with Kinetic Steamworks. And uh, this is actually uh, something that they take apart and put back together again in various places. So it's an installation. And uh, there's a great interview with Sean in the, uh, in the book where he talks about his process. And it's really, really quite interesting. And then, of course, in the origin section, we had to have a picture of Verne. We thought this old French magazine cover was just awesome with these under uh, these deep-sea creatures and, and uh, him sitting in the middle of them rather calmly. And you know um, how much I like tentacles. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, this is actually the cover of Morlock Knight uh, by K.W. Jader. He's the guy who came up with the term steampunk. And it's a, the cover from the Angry Robot edition that's coming out um, later this year. It's by John Colthart, who did all of the work on the Lambshead Fake Disease Guide and did a lot of the stuff for the Cabinet of Curiosities. Um, I thought it was a rather striking cover. And of course, you have to have something from uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And I thought that somewhere in this collection, this, this book, there had to be a two-page spread of a flaming submarine. Um, and so. <laughs> Luckily, although some publishers were not that cool about giving us stuff, um, Top Shelf was really wonderful about giving us some stuff from League. So. And then the other interesting thing is that sometimes the comics and the, the visual stuff lead to actual things in the world. And so Greg Broadmoor at Weta uh, Workshop, you know, he has these, these, um, 
these kind of uh, send-ups of colonialism and, and English explorers. And uh, they also create ray guns, actual ray guns in the real world. And, you know, you see a plastic model, and no matter how, you know, ingenious it seems, and you don't necessarily realize the physicality of it, but they have an actual workshop where they're putting this stuff together. And so in the comics section, we show some of the manifestations where there's kind of an interplay between the visual arts and the making arts, even if it's still kind of a decorative thing. And of course, you have to have girl genius in the, uh, in the comics section. Um, they were just so wonderful to work with. They were, they were really wonderful, great people. So. This is interesting. It's a place called Forevertron in Wisconsin. And it's this, this ex-NASA engineer who put together this, this thing that's supposedly half observatory, half weapon. That's supposed to help us in case of alien invasion, but also something to do with Queen Victoria. But the thing that's the thing that's most amazing about it, because the backstory is actually more coherent than I just made it seem, but <laughs> but but the but the interesting thing is there are actually parts from space capsules that he got that are that are into this and all kinds of obsolete technology, much of which actually has a history, but was still being discarded because either they had in museums already enough of this stuff or whatever. And so it's not just this, this thing that has kind of a steampunk impulse behind it, but it's also made up of various parts of, of our engineering history over the last 100 years. And then another recurring theme is mechanical elephants throughout the whole entire thing, and, and mecha again, mechanical animals. Um, the, one of the first Jules Verne novels had a mechanical elephant that people rode in. And there's a place in Nantes, France, uh, which also has the Jules Verne Museum, that has an island of mechanical animals on it. And so one thing we thought would be really cool is when we show some of this stuff, actually show the promotional materials associated with it because they're so beautiful. And so here's an actual promotional poster for the island of mechanical animals. And then there's actually the mechanical elephant. That's a real thing. It's and you can huge. ride in it. You can see the people inside it, so you can get yes. the scale of it. And we were actually lucky enough to be in Nantes and see it, so I was actually able in the book to kind of give a feel for what it's like. And what I mentioned in the book that's quite funny, I think, is that the people who operate the elephant have to enter by climbing a ladder that leads to a hole right below the tail of the elephant <laughs> and then go into the cockpit through there. So you don't see any of those pictures in the tourist brochures. Um, I don't know. I think it's it might recent. have been built in uh, the early uh, part of, of this century. I don't think it's any, I don't think it's, it's from, less yes, than, the 21st century. It's less century. than 10 years old, yeah. Yeah, so it's pretty amazing, especially if you don't realize that it's there and you're driving along, someone's driving you along and you suddenly look and it's like, holy crap, what the <laughs> is that? I mean, once a year so. they actually take it out and they, they it yes. goes around. But yeah. they have other creatures besides the elephants. Yeah. They have other Giant types of. Giant crab, uh, all kinds of stuff. So. Uh, it's, that it's I don't actually, know. It's actually, some of it is wood, believe yeah. it or not. Yeah. Quite a bit of it is wood. There's a lot of hydraulics involved. <laughs> yes. But, um, but it's pretty amazing. And then there's the fashion in steampunk. And I don't know if it might be a little washed out here, but I love this photograph. <laughs> because of the textures, because of the lines and the architecture of it, you have the architecture of the various um, uh, clothing. But then you have, of course, the latticework of the wooden ceiling, and then you have the latticework over there. Um, so I just think it's a really compelling uh, piece and a lot of them are look, trying to look very fierce too, which is always a plus. So. This is one of my favorite um, pages and it's kind of washed out at the top there, but there are a lot of different opinions on fashion in steampunk. And 
these are three of the people who have different opinions about fashion and steampunk. And they're all looking really fierce, and they're all looking in different directions. So it kind of visually tells you what's actually on the page, which I think is interesting. It's an East Coast, West Coast kind of thing. It is, actually, in some, t in some, some cases, yes. The West Coast is a little more mellow. And then there's some kind of interesting pop culture things going on. This is Jake Von Slatt, who runs the Steampunk uh, Workshop, one of the s sweetest people that I've, I've ever met in my life. And uh, he's a systems uh, engineer. And then he got into making, and then he got into steampunk. And now he's treated like a rock star in a lot of places that he goes, which is very not, he's not used to this. But the apex of this may have came, come when uh, he was asked to do a fashion shoot for an Italian magazine. They said, make it sexy. And so the next slide will show you on the left that they had him like wearing only half clothing and like tatters, like some kind of you know engineer peddler. Um, and there's this fashion shoot of him in this Italian magazine under the title of Steampunk with him, who's always thought himself as a geek, you know, as this, you know. <laughs> I think it's awesome. <laughs> but, anyway. Geek power. Yeah. And then there's the future of Steampunk. And I named it, I, I called it uh, Will Clockwork Gears, Mechanical Corsets, and Dirigibles Be Enough? Because back in 2008, I was interviewed for Australian National Public Radio, uh, and they were a little bit on the cheeky side. And at one point, uh, even though they knew I didn't know much about the fashion at that point, they said, well, what is steampunk fashion? And the first thing that came to mind was mechanical steam-powered corsets, <laughs> which makes no sense and is probably very dangerous. Um, <laughs> Which then led to the strangest follow-up question I've ever been asked, which is just simply, what are you wearing? Um, <laughs> and I had to tell her I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt, and she was very, very disappointed. Um, but, <laughs> but in any event, this whole chapter talks about the future of steampunk, part of which uh, has to do with um, continental European um, influences. Brazil has a huge steampunk st uh, scene. There's a lot of Chinese steampunk beginning to be done. And uh, this is actually from the, uh, the French tradition. They have a really strong and, and interesting, um, interesting subculture there. So. And San Van Olfen, who was the villain, if you remember, in the Cabinet of Curiosities piece that we showed, also did this, uh, which is, again, in the mechanical elephant mode. But if you, you can almost see it at the bottom right there. There's a duck. And it's Vaucasson's duck. I don't know if you're familiar with the mechanical duck from the 17th century, but it was beginning of a certain brand of automata, and uh, or automatons. And he uh, he created this duck with a full digestive tract that was made out of metal and wood and stuff, and walked around so it could actually kind of eat. <laughs> and uh, I thought it was kind of cute that he actually had that in the corner of this this piece. So Sam's actually a hero in this book. Yes. <laughs> And then one of the most awesome things is the end papers are this Chinese um, steamship or airship uh, by James Ng. And what we did is for the front of the book, the end papers are just the design. And in the back is the fully realized thing to kind of give completion. So we were pretty happy about that. Is that it? Mm -hmm, I think so. And then very briefly, we'll talk about a new initiative we're doing. We're doing handmade e-books. Um, we're doing them on letterpress with zeros and ones. And, um, okay. And, um, <laughs> and um, 
basically we were repackaging a lot of material with the idea that if you're going to brand ebooks, you should do it with colorful cover covers that have simple backgrounds and some arresting image in the front because that's really what readers are going to see on like Amazon page and whatnot. But we're going a little bit further. We're giving um, backstories to the images as if they were actually modeling for the covers. Um, we're going to have screensavers, we're going to have uh, t-shirts and all kinds of things with these images. They're by an, uh, an artist named Jeremy Zervas, and we think he's done a really nice job of kind of uh, giving them more of a pop culture feel. And some of them we reissue, some of them will be new stuff. And here are just a couple more examples. Um, we really like them. And we actually kind of want them to be books in the meat world now. <laughs> um, but. And then the last project we're working on is we're working on a new uh, anthology series called Odd with the tagline of, is it odd or are you too normal? Um, which gives it an organizing principle even if the contents are completely random. Um, and we're going to have, as you can see, work from uh, Amos Tatula, uh, Hiromi Gotu, Jeff Ford, Nayla Hopkinson. Some of it is original, some of it's material that's been out of print for a long time. The story uh, by uh, Tatulo is, is something that's more or less out of print in the U.S. And, um, and uh, so it's a mix of reprints and originals. We were only able to get some writers because it's an ebook only. If we were trying to get print rights for some of the stuff, we'd still have to go through major publishers, and it would be just a long, drawn-out process when this is supposed to be a fleet and nimble mammal. And so we're going to continue to expand on that idea of including contemporary stuff with older stuff that we can get the ebook rights to easily. Um, and, uh, and, and, and present it to a new audience because it's stuff that, like I said, has been out of print, but the rights are controlled, the print rights are controlled in such a way that it would be enormously expensive for an anthology editor to reprint them. And trust me, this is odd. It's not weird. <laughs> it, is. it is odd. So yeah. There's a story called different. Bloat Toad in it, which I love quite a bit. <laughs> yes. But it starts off with 40,000 dead babies and ends with the sausage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, stories titled really, that. Else, yes, so. really odd. But that's anyway what we've been working on, this visual in nature. And um, we thought we would share it with you this way rather than talking incessantly about it. So thanks. Is that it? I guess this is the break time. So. <laughs> and if at the break you want to take a look at the steampunk Bible, it's right up here. So. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.